I'm Kevin Doyle and this is The Floating Voter, Independent.ie's political podcast. It's been a week when the vaccine rollout ran into more trouble than we ever imagined, rooms ran out at the mandatory quarantine inn, and in the non-COVID world, Sinn Féin ran away from questions about how they manage voter information. Meanwhile, over in England, they went simultaneously into mourning for Prince William and out into beer gardens as lockdown began to lift in what Michal Martin might describe as a meaningful way. I'm joined as usual by INM political editor Philip Ryan and with us today is Labour Party leader and TD for Tipperary, Alan Kelly. Alan, you're very welcome to The Floating Voter. Thanks very much, Kevin and Philip. I suppose we'll have to start, Alan, with the, the story that probably affects our lives more than anything. There's lots of things happening in politics, but I think it's generally accepted that everybody wants the government to win on vaccines and they can't get even an ounce of luck. Uh, yesterday and the day before were very disturbing and worrying. Um, uh, the decision of NIAC, um, really, I understand and I know because I spoke to some people in the HSC, really took them uh, back. They weren't expecting it to be under 60s. They thought it would be under 30s or possibly under 40s, but under 60s really, um, you know, threw them uh, a really difficult situation because, you know, logistically how they manage this now has to be changed totally. Um, you know, the permutations of where the distribution points are versus storage versus cohorts and age groups uh, makes it really difficult. But the real clangor was Johnson & Johnson yesterday, and we just simply do not know how long that's going to take um, for it to be rectified. Um, so, you know, really we need uh, the uh, government to come out, I suppose, in the next uh, few hours, hopefully, to say what the current status is as regards our projections and meeting uh, four-fifths of the population uh, being vaccinated by uh, June because the public are completely living for that to happen. Um, uh, you know, people are at the end of their tether, so they're really, really waiting for this. So. We'll let you explain what you do now in a second, Alan, and you can give us all the answers. But you must have some sympathy for Stephen Donnelly and, and Micheál Martin, Leo Varadkar, over how this is all played out. I um, I want them to be successful. I, I'm very critical of Stephen Donnelly, as you're well aware. Uh, I'm also very critical of the government for giving him a mandatory quarantine and vaccines, I don't believe. I think most people are agree, agree with me now that um, he shouldn't be in charge of vaccines. Um, but... Uh, we do want them to be successful. It's in all their interests. Um, that's why we always continuously make suggestions to them. Sometimes they take them up, sometimes they don't. We don't do the populism. Um, sometimes we have to be critical, sometimes we have to be constructive. Um, but in relation to this, obviously the Johnson Johnson one is completely outside of uh, our control. Uh, the NIAC uh, issue uh, and their decision um, you know, is an interesting one because I still can't fathom their recommendations versus what they say in their conclusion. And I'll read it for you. In their conclusion, they say AstraZeneca can be used in adults aged under 60 years where the benefits clearly outweigh the risk for that individual. And the person has made an informed decision based on an understanding of the risks and benefits. Now, for me, that comes across as a, a slightly different and contradictory view. Um, and I've asked, um, I've even contacted the Taoiseach to ask him, um, to find out what that means. Uh, I've asked quite publicly um, that the government find out what that means because on the one hand, they're saying nobody under 60, but on the other hand, they're saying they'll review this again. So I suspect that they will be reviewing this again and possibly if we haven't got Janssen uh, coming through, that they'll have to look at this as regards to the under 60s again. In fact, a number of members on NIAC said that it was the proliferation of other vaccines coming on stream 
that meant that they would make this decision for under 60s. But we don't have that proliferation now because Janssen is gone. So are they going to review it again? That's a very important question. So what what do you think they should do? I mean, we are going to get um, over the next few days uh, a, a layout of what way this is going to work now and how they're going to do it. We know how many vaccines are coming into the country. We know what NIAC's recommendation is. What would you do if you were in charge? If you were if you were Stephen Donnelly, imagine that. Um, I could only imagine, huh? Um, <laughs> but, uh, the uh, I, I'd certainly have a look at this. I would certainly uh, be going to NIAC and asking what this recommend what this uh, conclusion means. Um, they've said all along uh, that their recommendations are based on the fact that we have a number of alternative vaccines, uh, and that this was an abundance of caution. Well, we don't have the same volume of alternative vaccines now. So I think that needs to be factored into the equation and ask them to consider this based on that. And then we would hopefully have a more elasticity as regards the vaccines and where we could put them. Because I have great sympathy for the HSC on this issue. I mean, to have this change so suddenly and for them to be expected to deliver this, um, uh, you know, in the time frame with all the change that is going to entail you know, is a massive logistical uh, job. So is the end of June still achievable? Hopefully. Uh, I can't answer that. That's a matter for the Taoiseach or the Minister for Health, whichever one of them is actually acting as the Minister for Health these days, because at times it gets confusing. Um, but um, I can't answer this, but I hope so. I think the country is hanging on it uh, effectively if, if that doesn't happen. Um, you know. Can I ask you a question, Alan? Um, just because you mentioned there at the start, you were talking to people in the, within the HSE about the, the NIAC's ruling on uh, the vaccine and, and AstraZeneca and only giving it to over 60s. Do, do the HSE has absolutely no input into those decisions? They stand off and they just let NIAC and Karina Butler has total oversight of that. And they can't give their input and go like, look, NIAC. Uh, we understand that there is these thing, these these risks of blood clots, but there's also the risk of, like you say, weighing up the risk of getting the, the virus and, and being a person who is susceptible to actually a, a, a bad outcome with the the, the 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 very minute possibility of getting a blood clot. Do, do an agency have no input in those decisions? It's totally hands off. Well, I've never seen a terms of reference for NIAC, um, so I don't really know fully everybody that's you know involved. I would presume the HSC would set out their views. And then that would go into the mix and I would make their decision. But I do want to say this. I'm not sure the variables that were made, used to make this decision were weighted enough. So, for instance, you know, there's an increase in vaccine hesitancy now. It's obvious. All TDs will tell you they've had people on to from the 60 to 69 category saying, you know, they're nervous about it, uh, about taking uh, AstraZeneca. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of a, just on that, how much of a hesitancy? Well, I've had quite a bit and I've been trying to tell everyone, I believe everyone should take it. I've been trying to uh, uh, convince them. So I, I think that is certainly an issue. Um, I wouldn't like and, to and what it. are they saying to you? They, they don't want to get blood clots. Like, well, they're saying, they're saying stuff like, you know, our family has a history of blood clots or history of strokes and we've been nervous about comments like that, which, you know what, are reasonable enough, I suppose. Um, but I always try and convince them to, do, uh, to take it. But the second issue then is in relation to uh, the weighting of the advice, now we have a situation where you know it's possibly going to be a longer period whereby people aren't going to be vaccinated. So that variable and the vaccine hesitancy are those two variables weighted enough in the NIAC advice? And also, obviously, they said they had other vaccines, which now isn't going to be proven to be the same level. So all of these issues really, you know, 
I would, I, you know, I would ask them to reconsider that on the basis of those variables having changed. Again, though, is it is it not in the power of the government to to change? Like it is a recommendation. It's not. Yeah. Well, it's, absolutely. It's up to the so, so turn I mean, around and I, say let's I mean, go fifties instead. Let's the, balance out the risk and go with fifties. Yeah, the T-shirt, the T-shirt, and the Minister for Health and Department of Health and HSE, and basically sitting down, as I understand it today. Uh, with the with the coordination group, should be putting those three things uh, to the group and coming out with a decision. At the end of the day, I suppose it's very hard to go against exact public health advice. But I believe the ground has changed now. The Janssen is is delayed, um, so you know they could have scoped there to maybe slightly vary from public health. But we'll see what transpires. Okay, so let's talk about the other uh, part of this shambles. I think we can call it at this stage. Uh, yesterday. Uh, people who went on to book their hotel for their mandatory quarantine coming from several European countries now, as well as as those strange far-flung places that started out on that list, uh, and went on discovered that there's no availability for the rest of this week right up to next Monday. And then Stephen Donnelly, after that news breaks, comes out and announces, oh, that they made a decision to pause because they wanted to make sure that it's all running efficiently and that they have enough rooms. So... In layman's terms, they ran out of rooms. In layman's terms, they never prepared for this. Um, the whole thing is a shambles. Uh, this minister shouldn't be in charge of it. If you look at his priorities as regards vaccinations, as regards running the health system, why he's doing uh, quarantine is beyond me. I think Fine Gael through Fianna Fáil, uh, a real um, uh, issue here in the sense that they wouldn't take it and they just left it to Donnelly. Um, I think this should be done by justice and it would be done uh, better, I would presume. Um, but it's a shambles. It's complete and utter shambles. It has been since the beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know where it's going to end because, I mean, frankly speaking, to say that we don't have enough hotel rooms is farcical because you know, look at the amount of hotels around the country. Like, um, I think in their defense, though, this is something that, you know, very few countries ever in the world have done. We're one of the very few who have tried to do it, albeit we took our time to do it. And kind of rushed it in over the last, uh, let's say, three months from late January into this year. And that included getting the legislation together, getting the getting the, the contract together. Like, the, look, it was never going to run easy, was it? It was never going to go like, oh, this no. is the best hotel quarantine system in the world. It runs like clockwork. This is Ireland, after all. This is a kind of a mix-mash government. A load of departments washed their hands of it, like you rightly said. Helen McEntee didn't want anything to do with it. Simon Coveney didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, the Taoiseach's office, I think they might have even looked at overseen it they didn't want that to do it so give it to Stephen Donnelly who has shed loads of other things to be doing um, and let, let him fix it in there along with vaccinating the country stopping COVID spreading and all that so I think like it is a shambles but I, I think it's kind of a predictable shambles it's not something that you know like this was never just going to go and tick along and, and what's always missed about the point of this thing is that it's to stop people coming here but that was the point of it. Everybody's going like, oh, this is a real burden to the people who are coming here to, to visit family or coming, hol- coming back from holidays or getting their boob jobs. Like that, The whole point of it is that it's a burden. And, and, and you have people actually giving out the whole time that, it, that it's, it's, it's adding stress to international job, travel during a global pandemic. I'm not sure I disagree with anything you said there, Philip. Um, I know um, uh, <clears throat> Minister Coveney certainly had uh, pressures from other quarters by the looks of things over the last 24 hours in relation to this. But um, <laughs> Well, let's I, just I, explain I, that, Alan, before you move on. <laughs> rather just throw it out there. But that that you're referring, I presume, to his brother, brother. The, the CEO of Green Corps, who, who said, and I have it here, that basically he criticised the 
and said it's hard to overstate the incompetence and lack of foresight regarding what's going on with capacity issues in the hotels. And Ireland is now officially shut off from the US and most of the EU with little hope of being able to safely source the massive levels of hotel prison capacity to sustain mandatory hotel quarantine policy. Um, that is quite the intervention from somebody who knows, like Patrick Coveney's a clever man. He knows that's going to turn up. Uh, Alan Kelly's going to be talking about it on, on podcasts going, that's the foreign affairs Patrick minister. Coveney obviously brother. hasn't stayed in Clontarf Castle or the Hard Rock Hotel either. <laughs> he thinks they're prisons. The, um, yeah, and I would have, you know, it would be a very interesting phone call between the two brothers after the tweet went out last night. But um, I think what Philip said there is probably accurate, but the only one caveat I'd say is that, you know, you, you said it in your in, at the beginning of what you were saying. Effectively, it was rushed. It didn't have to be rushed. They had loads of time to do this. Um, so that's where the real criticism comes. I mean, obviously, anything that's rushed is going to have errors. Um, legislation was passed through way late, um, rushed. And then you have the situation as regards getting a hotel contractor, only one hotel contractor, issues as regards security, all of that. It's all rushed through. I mean, effectively, this should have been planned a long time in advance. It was flagged by NIFID last May, and that's where the real criticism of this government on this issue comes. But just going back to that, Alan, because last week, well, for the last two weeks, really, we had this Stephen Donnelly versus Simon Coveney row over hotel quarantine and I, I think Philip Ryan even wrote and even Fiona Sheehan wrote at the weekend that this was a big win for Stephen Donnelly that he got all these extra countries uh, lashed onto the list and that all Simon I think it was Fiona who wrote that all Simon Coveney's complaints about capacity had all fallen away actually maybe Simon Coveney was right yeah I think Simon Coveney uh, his angle as regards have we the capacity you know, it looks like he was right that doesn't mean that the government was right. The government was completely wrong. I mean, the volumes we'd have known that uh, potentially what volumes would be coming in once we introduced this, and they should have in time uh, had enough uh, capacity booked. Um, so there's no winners here. I mean, it might seem like a Stephen Donnelly victory over Simon Coveney, but if it was, he, he won the first half, but he lost the second half. And now the country is a bit of a laughing stock in the issue. Well, I suppose, look, that's the, the politics. We know that there's a real problem with the three parties in the coalition and they haven't really gelled. Let's be honest about it. P people in, in the parties admitted themselves that, that the way politics is running at the moment means they haven't really gelled. But politics is continuing. And we, we want to talk a little bit about that as well, Alan. But Philip, first, maybe you might tell us about a story you've been tracking for the last uh, four or five days around Sinn Féin and how they have managed to, I don't know, is modify the right word, but to, to, to use the voter registration to turn it into some sort of database and then come knocking at your door. Yeah, this is one of these stories where at present there's kind of a lot more questions out there than answers from Sinn Féin, who just have completely gone to ground in the last few days. But the simple steps are obvious. On Saturday, we ran a story which was based on a Sinn Féin presentation to some of their uh, official representatives and their organizers, which was teaching them how to use Facebook. And one of the things they were asking them to do was to go onto Facebook, engage with people, their words, and then elicit, again, their words, information from them, online Facebook users, which could be cross-referenced with a system that they had built called the Abu system, um, which can be the, the information they gained online could be used in the Abu system to find a person, find their address, and then go knock on their address, knowing that they've had a positive engagement with a Sinn Féin rep, and ask them to vote for them. Um, which I'm not sure Facebook users realize this is happening if they engage with someone from Sinn Féin online. 
Um, and then the second part of this, is this a boo system, it, which it, it seems to be a digitized version of the electoral register and the mark register, coupled with more information about the individual voting intentions of people who Sinn Féin have canvassed or have found. Um, it's unclear what, like, if if Facebook information is stored, if your your online engagement is stored in this system. But we know that there is this system. The domain is registered in Massachusetts in the U.S., which isn't a huge problem whatsoever. A lot of people buy their domain names all around the world. That's fine. Sinn Féin would only say where the, this information is kept is on a server in the EU, which is a 27-member state, which we're all part of and stretches from. Greece up to ourselves and over to Poland and back. So we don't know where, and they won't tell us where this information has been held. And this morning, as far as I can see, the actual website, which was sfabu, as in go in Irish, dot com, um, is gone. And it's no longer registered to Sinn Féin in, in the US. So again, there's a lot of questions to be answered here. And hopefully Sinn Féin on day five of this will, will maybe start answering some questions. So just just to really say, you gave us a very simple explanation there of what the EU is, but I'm still a little bit confused <laughs> as to what Sinn Féin Abu is. So basically, it is a database where they have the electoral register and in beside that, they seem to have kind of tried to identify the potential for somebody to vote for them on that register. So uh, within that, it is, they, they have built a database based on election, like publicly available information has to be said, but they have put all this into their own database, which is, which new one I didn't know about. I don't think most of the 3.5 million voters in this country know that this database exists. The database, as far as I can see, can then be used as a canvassing tool. So you know from the, these, these engagements online where someone might be interested in voting Sinn Féin, you can use this database to pinpoint where they live and you can call to their door, then you can open your database and go, I've called to Alan Kelly's door down in Port Row, and he was not interested in voting for I'd Sinn say that did, I'd say they didn't and, get a great reception there, now, to be fair. But, but, and, uh, but, Alan, I know you've raised some concerns about this, but what, like, it just sounds like cl clever politics. The electoral register exists, Facebook exists, people put all sorts of information on the internet, so it just looks like they're doing their homework um, and targeting their canvassing. This is potentially deadly dangerous um, as regards data protection. Um, every constituency office has, if you're a TD or senator, you've access to the constituency database. Um, obviously, you've got the electoral register and you can map things across. Um, but I remember when GDPR came in, you know, we all had to obviously look at how we, uh, we maintain this data, um, have a, you know, provide information to anybody we're engaging with on our emails, people who walk into the office um, as regards GDPR, data protection. And I can't see, I don't, we don't have enough information, uh, but Sinn Féin really need to answer questions as regards, is this within data protection law? Is it within GDPR? Um, why is some of this potentially being stored outside the country? Um, you know, this is a fairly serious issue uh, that we don't have enough information on. And now the website has gone down uh, because obviously journalists were are pursuing this uh, with great vigor. Um, but it seems to me something that is, you know, if if information has been stored by a constituency, a TD, for instance, then that information has been shared to a national system. Well, then that is uh, a cause for serious concern. 
Philip, what have Sinn Féin said? I know you said there's a lot of unanswered questions, but what have they said? Um, Sinn Féin, um, where is this response? I'll bring it up here. The main, the, on the, the, the main question, the very basic question of where is all this information and what are you doing with it, all they would say is that, um, that they're, it's based on servers in the EU and they're following GDPR. They wouldn't answer like the, the simple question but of I who developed Mary- it. I think Mary Lou McDonald needs to come out front and face, uh, you know, questions in relation to this, um, very detailed questions, um, because, you know, we need to know that, you know, effectively we don't have a political party that's building a, you know, national database uh, or on individuals. Um, you know, this would strike back to stuff that was done in the, you know, in in bad times during the Cold War, where there's, you know, there's a, a kind of a profile being done on every individual in the country. Um, that would be really scary stuff. Um, so we need to get more transparency and more information. And Mary Lou McDonald needs to be accountable for what is going on here. It, it is worrying that information has been stored off, off uh, outside the Republic of Ireland. Um, I also believe that legislation in this area obviously needs to be completely tightened up. And I've seen some uh, commentary that this is going to happen. And certainly we will be supporting that. So just the basics on it, though, is that and you'll probably notice yourself and if you if you are storing a lot of information public information on people you have to follow these gdpr rules that we keep hearing of which entitles people to know number one that they're on a database and number two yeah they have to be given access to this database and the the part the person who is creating this database has to assign a data protection officer who deals with these sort of information requests. Yep. And as far as I can see, I, I don't know how you go about asking Sinn Féin or for Every political party has, has those, you know, structures in place um, or should have, dare I say, uh, those structures in place. Um, but, you know, it, you know, it would be a scary situation if uh, Sinn Féin have uh, Philip Ryan address uh, details, engagements on social media and percentage likeliness to vote Sinn Féin one, two or three, like that, you know, that goes a bit far, you know. Um, because just just so I understand it, Alan, and I'm sure you know this in a practical world, because I've gone on lots of canvases with with politicians and, you know, there are people go around at the door with their with their clipboard and yeah. uh, Kevin Doyle complains that the footpaths around here are fecking useless. He's out wheeling a pram at six in the morning and sure the tyres are bet on it. And could you do anything about the footpath? And while you're at it, I had that thing in with the council about the tax or something else. And they take a note of it and they go away yeah. and may- maybe they do something on it and maybe they don't. But can I go back and ask in six months whether you still have that on a file in your constituency office that Kevin Doyle raised issues about some tax policy or some local issue or whatever, dog dog poo, whatever? Yeah, absolutely. If Kevin Doyle uh, asks the constituency office of a TD, um, who has access to this, you know, system, um, and it's logged in the system, and they want to know, you know, what have you? Um, yeah, of course you can ask, and they'll provide it. That's the system. But you know, I've never heard of it at a national level where you know a party is actually profiled in every citizen in the state. That's not something uh, that you know that I've never heard of. And there's so much, you know, questions regarding this, the storage of this, the mining of this. Um, you know, people who are working on it, where they're based, either outside the country, potentially maybe even outside the EU for all we know. Um, you know, so there's lots of questions here and it needs to be filtered through. And I hope the Data Protection Commissioner is taking a look at it. In the broader context, Alan, the if you want to be in government after the next election, you're probably going to have to go in with Sinn Féin. So you're, you're, you have all these worries. I know you have a 
broader political doubts about them as well, but they, they are on course for Taoiseach Mary Lou Macdonald. I think politics is changing quite rapidly. Um, if you had to look at it around the time of the by-elections, a few months before the last general election, you wouldn't have said Sinn Féin were anywhere near going to be in a situation where they could go into government. And then we had uh, the situation uh, as regards um, uh, the commemoration of uh, of uh, Black and Hands, etc. And things changed. Um, but um, from our perspective, you know, we're not going to rule anything in or out. Um, I don't think we're in a position to do so, to be fair. Um, but you know, Sinn Féin would want to uh, change quite considerably to become uh, you know a party that's uh, going into government with other parties. Uh, I I cite one thing, which uh, I. Along with having you know nervousness about aspects of people's uh, behavior in the past and all of that, which are well trashed out, I think their behavior online of some of their activists, the trolling, uh, etc. Um, you know, they need to really consider that because if they want anyone to ever go into government with them, they can't just light switch say, "Oh well, we did all this to you online," um, all that behavior, and then oh. We can be friends with you afterwards because we want to go into government with you. I don't think people are going to buy that. When do you think the next election is going to be? Um, I have two views on it. Um, uh, you know, you weigh them up every now and then. Um, at this moment, at this juncture in time, I don't think this government is going to last. I don't think it's going to do a full term. Um, for I suppose two reasons. Firstly, I think in the post-COVID world, as we come out of COVID, there's going to be a very difficult situation for the government financially and in every other way. And I'm not sure uh, if uh, a three-party government, which certainly aren't gelling and don't like one another, aren't getting on with one another, um, can survive that. Uh, but the other reason is Fianna Fáil are in turmoil, absolute turmoil. Um, and, you know, they're paying the price for a Taoiseach who was so desperate to be Taoiseach. Uh, that he effectively has jettisoned, um, you know, Fianna Fáil itself and its electoral prospects. Michal Martin wants to be Taoiseach so bad that the consequences for the party, I think, have been detrimental. And, um, you know, there are a number of people in Fianna Fáil who are seeing this, and obviously there will be a challenge, I would suspect, at some point. And the third aspect to that is, you know, Fianna Gael may wish to go to the country themselves um, uh, at some juncture, you know, given all of that turmoil which I've just outlined. Uh, the other aspect of it is, you know, if, if uh, the government are in a fairly bad situation, they may wish to hold on purely because of the fact that, you know, it's uh, it's not good for any of them. But at this juncture, I don't think this government is going to last a very long time post-COVID post period. I think your point there is most salient that, like, none of them could be sure of holding their seats anyway at this stage. Especially yeah. if, if you're in the Greens or if you're in Fianna Fáil. You're well, that's, that's the other thing, but then... But then Fine Gael may may have a different view on that. I mean, mm. you know, you've got a situation where a lot of the ministers aren't performing very well. Um, there's one or two who have, I think, to be balanced. Simon Coveney has been good in foreign affairs, particularly in relation to Brexit. Um, but Look at the um, north. He got, we gave Simon Coveney a car and a guarded driver so he could go up and down the north to make sure there was peace on the island. That hasn't really worked out, though, has it? No, I know. I remember raising that. I don't think it was too fond of me after that. But anyway, the um, so from a, I suppose from a, for the future of this government, I mean, you've got a situation uh, which is very unstable. Um, they will obviously hang together until uh, next year, and hopefully we're charting our way out of COVID. But after that, I think all bets are off. To be honest with you, Philip, when do you think the next election will be? I think it'll last longer than than Alan kind of says because of that. 
that they're all in this together. And if you're Fianna Fáil, TD even, not even just the minister looking at those polls, you're going, well, I'm really going to put at risk my my steady income, um, my my job, my pension, all of that. Like the, the, the financial impacts of it on a TD are huge if they lose. The same with the Green Party albeit they're probably a little bit more ideological, but they're still have to feed their families. Yeah, I think that's I think it's a fair point, Philip. And you know what? You notice in the last number of governments there's an element of that creeping into politics because it's such a you know it's such a volatile career. But the premise upon which you're, you're saying that is that you know Senegal, depending on where they are in the polls, they may have a different view to Fianna Fáil and the Greens. Mm. And might see an opportunity. I mean, you can imagine a situation where Leo Varadkar would say, "I'll sacrifice being Taoiseach for two and a half years because I believe the country." Um, you know, I think we should go to the country. I mean, I wouldn't rule that out either. Um, it oh, certainly, like that'd be if it if it's going to come, it has to come from Fine Gael. It, and obviously, they have the, uh, a big block as well, which would mean like the Greens could go and the government could try cobble together something with ourselves, maybe and some independence, etc. So if, if it is to be brought down, it will be Leo and the gang, I think. But I have to ask, Alan, I mean, you're talking about Fianna Fáil in turmoil there. Philip's talking about the Greens losing seats. Like, Labour hasn't exactly been uh, given CPR since you took over, has it? Ah, look, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> um, look, I suppose um, I'm unique in that I took over a party um, in a very different situation at the beginning of a pandemic. My whole leadership has been through a pandemic. Um, you know, I'm trying to manage the party uh, between Dáil Éireann and on Zoom. Um, we've had an awful lot of change internally, a huge amount of um, a positive change. We've a huge amount of volume of new members joined. And I think in fairness, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people would say that we're punching above our weight in Dáil Éireann and Shannon Éireann. Um, we certainly produced the most amount of legislation and campaigns per per. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, per, per party as regards to the size of our party, um, you know, we've been ahead of the game when it came to working from home, when it came to sick pay, you know, the whole issue of um, people being entitled to citizenship, um, a rake of other issues. What, as well. what do you think you can achieve? I mean, you're kind of pretty static down there, somewhere between three yeah, but, but, percent. But, but, what, like, what's a reasonable target for you? I think we can get into the uh, teens. I... I I believe that politics will change fundamentally, totally, as we come out of COVID. I think Ireland has changed. I think COVID has been the biggest disruptor we will ever face in our life, in our lives. And as a consequence of that, people's priorities will change. And their priorities will be family, health, education, fairness, um, you know, the whole issue in relation to our work-life balance, public services, all, all areas that are very much aligned to what the Labour Party stands for. And if we, when we get out and we start pushing that message and pushing our campaigns and getting around the country, and I believe we have some of the best public reps in the country, when we can get around the country and get our message out, well, then I think you'll see us uh, change as regards our polling and our standing. The final question then, who are you going to take those seats from? Um, and you, you know, I, I suppose, you know, you, you look across we have certainly big plans across a range of different constituencies, but as regards who we're, you know, looking to take seats off, it's not a case of that. It's a case of making sure that, you know, we can push ourselves out there to be in contention for those seats in some cases. That is, you have to take them off somebody, sure, you can't. Oh, be, Tip, Tipperary a, never went out to play a game of hurling and said, it doesn't, you know, we don't have be, to beat this other crowd to win. It'll be a range of, it'll be a range of different parties and independents, to be honest with you. Um, but remember also there's, there's other variables that come into play as regards the timing of that election. 
Um, you know, for instance, another variable which no one's taken consideration of is we have to have a census soon. And as a result of that, there will have to be uh, constituency boundaries we looked at. So the likelihood is, is with the population that we'll have somewhere between six and eight more TDs. Constituencies around the country will change. Um, so, you know, got to bear all that in mind as well. Okay, Philip, um, I'll, I'll make you ask, answer the hard question to finish up. How many seats will Alan Kelly have after the next election? Oh, Jesus. I don't know what you have, seven at the moment. Is it? I'll give you six TDs and five senators. But if you look, just to, just to, if you look at some of the people, like, I mean, uh, Alan, don't, don't let him dodge, Alan. Come on. I know. I'm not going to let him, I'm not going to let him dodge. But like, if you look at Mark Wall in Kildare, who narrowly missed out and see, look at Ivana Batchek, who's going to be running in Dublin, uh, based out in the next election. Uh, you look at our other three senators, Marie Charlotte. Batchek has run a few times now at this stage. So they all have, all have great potential. And, like, I believe we can certainly be in the running for quite a number of seats in the next election, um, whenever that election is. But in a post-COVID world or in a, a world where we're coming out of COVID. The one thing I would say is, though, the party can be sometimes, and I know I've seen a, a change to this as well, but a lot of the times it can be kind of focused on yourself a little bit too much because you do a lot of the forerunning, you latch on to the issues, you are the spokesperson across a range of different things, and you're very good at kind of, catching the thing to do but then i suppose it just needs more of the the other tds and senators and potential candidates to to do similar to latch on and to be kind of outward speaking on, on issues that that you yourself are also on yeah, well you know i suppose as a leader you have to uh, lead from the front um i, I think uh hopefully my performance in dollar has ramped up our, our position as a party and, and uh you know uh, the vis visuality of, of us as a party but um, you look at Eon Reardon. I mean, he's certainly been the outstanding spokesperson in education, to be fair. Um, he knows the topic inside out. Um, and he, he has uh, certainly raised issues that the government have been put under serious pressure on. And he's been very constructive, in fairness as well. But across our TDs, I mean, I don't think anybody could have gone into the detail um, the way Brendan Howland did in relation to the issues as, as regards the, um, the appointment of Justice Wolf in the Dáil. I think it was exemplary that showed the level of knowledge um, that somebody has, mm. and our other TDs uh, uh, as well. I mean, will any will anyone ever forget Duncan Smith's? Um, uh, I suppose a speech, a reaction, which is just completely passionate and you know, um, spur of the moment in relation to. Well, it's becoming a consistent attack on us by the likes of the Healy Rays and others. And you know, um, fairness, Jed Nash is, is huge, doing huge work on economics, and Sean Sherlock is it's across a number of topics all as right, well. We've, we've, we've given we've given you a good. We're working. Part. We're working. <laughs> we're working. I've, I've named all eleven of them. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we can wrap. So can we finish up? Alan? Can, I, can, I, can I just say this though? In fairness, I've been in 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 the parliamentary party since two thousand and seven, and this is most collegiate uh, bunch that and best working bunch I've been involved in. It's not because I'm leader. It's just. I think I think in fairness it's just we got to a point where we just all gelled together and said right yeah. we're going to bring this party back and we are look he's got the job we're going to have to put up with him let's move on <laughs> yeah right <laughs> we're going to wrap it up there Alan you got everybody mentioned now there's no one left out you're not going to cause a riot with the PP this week uh, when they listen back no you're safe Thanks very much for the opportunity. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our lot for this week, folks. Uh, my thanks to Philip Ryan, as always, and Labour Party leader and far more importantly, Tipperary TD, Alan Kelly. We'll be back next week with more from The Floating Voter. <laughs>